We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. When I ask my witnesses about what makes their life meaningful, the most common answer is relationships and love, and that goes hand in hand with good sex. However, it's easy to think more of something good is better still, and why not a little bit more? Somewhere along the line, this tips into destructive behaviour which can destroy your relationship, and worse still, lead to addiction. My witness today is the psychotherapist Silva Neves, who specialises in sexology, relationships and trauma. He's the course director of the Contemporary Institute of Clinical Sexology and the author of a new book called Compulsive Sexual Behaviour, a Psychosexual Treatment Guide for Clinicians. I've been a relationship therapist for 35 years and I've seen a lot of changes in how my profession deals with sexual issues, mostly for the better. However, about 15 years ago, I started to get invitations to training courses and conferences about sex addiction. I thought, could it help some of my clients whose sex life has become chaotic or was making them miserable? Before too long, I had men turning up in my practice who had diagnosed themselves or their wife thought they might be a sex addict, especially after the discovery of an affair. Sometimes these men, and also sometimes women, would ask if they were addicted to pornography too, and maybe they could be love addicts instead. I had two questions that have been churning around in the background of my mind for a long, long time. First of all, can you be addicted to sex, love or pornography in the same way that you can to alcohol or drugs? Secondly, is it a helpful diagnosis for my clients? That's why I'm delighted to have Silva Nevis as my witness to help me think through these questions. If you're concerned about your own sexual behaviour or the behaviour of someone you love, I hope you'll come away with a greater knowledge and some ideas to ease the pain and to move forward. Now, thank you very much for this book, which I've been thinking about a lot over the last few days. And I think it's really important we start off with this sort of kind of idea. You make a difference between addiction and compulsivity. Can you sort of walk us through what do you mean by those two words and why it's important to understand the differences of them? Sure. Sex addiction is the term that's been going around for decades now, since the 80s, particularly when it's really kind of took off as a conceptualization. And it's easy to think that sexual behaviors can be an addiction because on the surface, the behaviors that we observe are really kind of similar to other addictions that we see. You know, people doing things in secret, doing things uh, repetitively, and it causes uh, issues, a lot of issues, especially in relationships. And the behavior gets sort of cumulatively worse and worse in the same way that with drink and drugs, it gets worse and worse. Well, sometimes, but not actually always. So, um, so that's what actually one of the, one of the differences between addiction and compulsivity, if you will, is that sometimes the behaviors are kind of the same, repetitive, but they don't always escalate to getting worse and worse. So that's something definitely that, that we can discuss because for some people, they do say it, it gets worse and worse. And in fact, the difference between the two is that with addiction, so with drugs and alcohol, the known addiction, it is something to do with tolerance. And that means that the the brain gets impaired because it's an outside substance that gets into the brain. And so the brain has to readjust itself to not be overwhelmed. So it means that then it becomes tolerant. And as, as it becomes tolerant, the person needs more of that same substance to achieve the same high. And that's that's why in, in alcohol and drugs, the, the amount of substance escalates. But with People with compulsive sexual behaviors, often they do repetitive behaviors, but they do the same things. Most of the people, they actually do the same things, which is basically if it's pornography, it's pornography. If it's uh, having sex with other people, it's having sex with other people. If it's a bit of both, it's a bit of both. Some people, it's cyber sex, whatever. Sometimes, though, some people say that because of the shame that they feel after a sexual behavior or because of you know, returning home and feeling guilty about what they've done, 
if, if they have a partner and they have basically cheated on their partner, then that guilt and that shame can increase the disturbance. And which means that then the way that they uh, relieve that disturbance is by going back on doing a little bit more pornography or doing a little bit more chat rooms or, or whatever. And then the experience is as an escalation, as doing more and more and more. But it's not actually about tolerance. It's more about soothing, which is quite different. What do we mean exactly by compulsivity? Let's define exactly what you mean by compulsivity. Compulsivity is doing something on a repetitive basis to soothe an uncomfortable feeling. And that's all it does. So compulsivity usually does not create any uh, good feelings, but it soothes an unpleasant feeling. For example, people that wash their hands compulsively, it's soothing the anxiety of germs, for example. So, so it is a coping, a coping mechanism. And what other things do we do compulsively so we can get a, a really broad picture of this? A food is a very common one. So usually a lot of people will say they eat when they're not hungry, but they eat because they have a, an uncomfortable feeling. Some people have binge eatings and the binge eatings is very much also a quite actually most related to compulsive sexual behaviors. That's really when people feel like they are, have a deprivation. And so then they binge eat to soothe that, their sense of deprivation. I see. And we could possibly shop compulsively as well. We can shop, yes, especially online shopping is very easy. Any behaviours can become compulsive if it's the, the behaviour that gives us a sense of soothing. So um, uh, a lot of people say now that cigarette is not actually addictive in terms of the nicotine is not that addictive, but what is addictive is the habit, the behavioural habit, because that can be a soothing mechanism as well. But anything, some people could be, you know, taking five showers a day and other people could be watching Netflix all day long and, you know, it could be anything really. Excellent. So does it really matter what we call it, whether we call it sex addiction or sexual compulsivity? Does it really matter? Well, some people said it doesn't matter, but I believe it really does matter. And that's really because addiction in the first place is associated with a disease and it's associated with a pathology. And as soon as you start to put sex into a pathology category, I think it can do harm for a lot of people because it can increase their shame about their behavior rather than trying to understand it and trying to understand the erotic mind, really. So with addiction, also the addiction thinking, as soon as somebody thinks they're addict, the first thing that they will think of doing is stopping it. And stopping becomes the primary goal of most addiction treatments and most people thinking, I've got an addiction, so I've got to stop it. If that's your primary goal, then you don't get to understand your very complex erotic mind and you're going to try to repress it rather than anything else and that is actually can induce what people in the addiction language call relapse which is that then they're going to go on a binge and so often it's really not helpful to, to have that language we now have some research that shows that having the addiction mindset for sexual behaviors actually increases distress rather than decreasing it so what we call it is important because what we call it informs what treatment we're going to use. If we think we're an addict, we're going to go for an addiction treatment, which usually combines 12-step programs and some kind of therapy. And that might not always be the right thing for people. I mean, and I think it is incredibly important. I agree with you what we call it. I think actually the images are more important because the name is less important, but it's the images that it conjures up. And addiction conjures up a huge lot of very negative pictures for us. And we sort of don't need that because when it comes to sex, we already have enough negative images thrown around in our culture. I mean, and this is another thing you talk about that maybe not everybody in listening to the podcast will understand and know. And I think this is another useful thing to lay out, sex positivity and sex negativity. So tell us about that. Yes, you are quite right that the topic of sex is already difficult without adding an extra layer of disease language. And that's because we kind of live in a sex negative world most of the time, although it is changing now and some countries do better than others. For example, Germany is doing pretty well compared to countries like maybe Spain or, you know, countries that have more kind of religious, <laughs> religious uh, places. So what's your background? I am French. So I grew up in France. Yep. So tell us about the French culture and sex. Because we think the French are really great lovers. That's the image <laughs> that the English have. 
<laughs> well, that's not really quite true, really. The thing about France is that it is a secular country. So the French people really pride themselves with being secular, and that means they can criticize the religion. So there is a lot less religious um, thinking when it comes to sex. And I think a lot of the countries that are quite sex negative, there are countries where there is high religiosity. It doesn't matter what religion, typically religion has some strong opinions about some sexual behaviors. So in France, we don't have that. So that's the positive part of it. However, in France, there's still quite a lot of tradition around monogamy and, and marriage. And so they also don't quite understand things like polyamory, for example, or they will think it's alternative. And there is still a lot of misogyny in France. And so, uh, you know, the kind of like gender roles are still pretty set. So, you know, it's not all great, but we definitely don't have that kind of religious thinking about sex. You know, for example, when in, in the, in the 80s, when Madonna was famous, you know, really quite famous, the, the, the entire world was shocked that she was topless, but the French people were shocked that she wore a cross, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So that's just to kind of, you know, illustrate a little bit about the differences. And I think it's really helpful for people to think about the messages they got about sex when they were growing up. You know, I often ask people, tell me how you learned about the birds and bees, which is the English way of talking about sex education. I mean, for example, at my school, we started off, and I can't really quite work out why this was, we started measuring the length of willow leaves. I mean, and so we spent a lot of time talking about how amoebas split and things like that. We spent very little time talking about actual sexual intercourse. Mm -hmm. We certainly didn't talk anything about pleasure or anything else like that. So what messages did I get about that? So the message I got was it was something biological and it was something that our teachers were terrified to talk about. That doesn't add up to sexual positivity. So what is sexual positivity? Yeah, you're quite right. You know, sex education is so poor in all the countries, you know, even France is so, it, it's, it's really bad. And people do get that. They get the sense of the, the biological, not even the right information about biology uh, most of the time anyway, but nobody talks about pleasure and nobody talks about consent actually, which is even more worrying, although it is changing. But yeah, sex positivity is basically getting the right information about what sex is, and that is basically pleasure-focused, because we know that having sex for procreation is actually a very, very small percentage of the desire to have sex, and most people want to have sex for pleasure, not procreation. And also, people use sex for soothing, and that is another thing that we don't talk about very much, and people think it's wrong, but actually it's a very good functional part of having sex. But sex positivity goes bigger than that. It's also about opening your mind that whatever turns you on may be a turn off for somebody else and vice versa. And that is very important because a lot of the time people, if they hear of somebody else's turn on that is completely alien to them or that is even repulsive to them, they, what the first thing that they would do is judge. Judge this other person for having that particular turn on or make it a problem when it's not a problem. So give us an example of the sort of things you're talking about, these sort of individual turn-ons that might surprise us, but your patients or your clients have brought to you? Well, it could be a heterosexual couple not wanting intercourse, for example. And if they actually talk about that at, you know, a dinner party, not that we talk about sex at dinner parties, but if they did, you know, it's really likely that other people will think, oh gosh, they don't want penetration, there's something wrong with them. That's not real sex. I think I have <laughs> clients that would say that. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's something, you know, kind of really quite basic, really, but even like that kind of basic stuff, people would judge. And then, of course, we've got the, the bigger stuff, like somebody that might say, I'm turned on by uh, using food when I have sex, you know, like yes, putting, you know, have, having Smear my body... With smearing it over each other. Right, exactly, yes. And that might also, you know, some people might think, oh, that's, that's really weird. What happened in their childhood that they need to do that? You know, so that, that's really still the kind of judgment that a lot of people get now. And that's very sex negative. So what you're saying is the great problem of one sex negativity and actually saying that something is an addiction and shutting it down is we sort of don't actually discover what somebody's sexual palate is. And it's really important to understand your sexual palate is one of your central theories, really. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, if you don't know your sexual palate, your erotic palate, then you just don't know what's right and what's wrong for you. 
And actually, every palate is different from one person to the other. It's kind of like saying to somebody, I like seafood. And then somebody else says, well, I don't like seafood. Well, that's what it, it, it just is, right? You can't just force somebody liking seafood if they don't. And the, your, your erotic palate is the same. There are going to be some things that are going to be really pleasurable for you, something that you're going to love to have in your sex life, something that you're going to need to have in your sex life most of the time when you have sex in order to be turned on. And there's going to be other things that you might want to have sometimes in your sex life, but not always. And there are some things that you just never want to have in your on your plate. So it's really the same, the same thing, but you have to know that. And many people, because of the poor sex education and the sex negative world, they don't spend a lot of time actually exploring their own erotic palette. So it means that they can have sex or engage in sexual activities all their lives, being quite quite in the dark. And then when there is an issue, for example, when they start to cheat on their partner, which is, you know, cheating is, is a behavior that causes a lot of damage in, in a relationship and hurt people. But often, some, some of those people will do that on a almost subconscious level, but in a way to say that's the erotic palette that says, I actually need that bit. You know, you're, you're neglecting that bit, but it's really important. And that's how, unfortunately, often they discover some bits of the erotic palette is by doing something that's outside of the commitments. And then there is a terrible shock because they arrive after the man has been discovered looking at transsexual porn, for example. I mean, the shock for the partner is huge because the idea is if he is watching transsexual porn, he wants to be with a transsexual and I'm not going to be enough for him. So on one level, I'm sitting here thinking, yes, we all want to get in contact with our sexual palate and understand ourselves better. But what if I'm into food and you're into transsexuals? Sorry to give you that. <laughs> but yeah. it just was in my mind at the moment. So this is all mm. entirely um, fictional here at the moment. Mm. So, yes. you know, if we were in a relationship together and you might not particularly like food and I'm not a transsexual. So, you know, what do we do if we discover something like that about our erotic templates? Well, absolutely. That's a great question. And actually, the watching transsexual porn is very, very common. In fact, the thing is that to, to know that is fine because your erotic palette and my erotic palette is quite wide. It's not just one thing. So maybe the food is one thing for me and transsexual is one thing for you, but actually there's other stuff that we want in our banquet. And maybe there are some food that we both enjoy or some parts of our erotic palette that we both enjoy, right? And then we focus on that as a couple. And it's actually also needing to accept, and that's part of sex positivity, accepting that our erotic is sometimes wider than what the partner can meet. And so if we can find some common element of our erotic template to be in a relationship, then that's great. But also accepting that maybe the transsexual erotic part needs to be met in a different way, maybe through masturbation and porn privately without your partner being involved. And why would that not be okay? It could be that the transsexual porn and the food are a doorway to something else. So the food, it might be a lot about sensations. So, you know, it could be I'd go from there to massage, for example, or smells or all sorts of other things that could be a door where we could find lots of things that we might enjoy doing together. Exactly. Absolutely. And sometimes it might be that once in a while, you might decide to just do something for your partner rather than just for you and just focusing on them and think, okay, well, that day, let's introduce the food. That's okay. I'll do that for you. And that's a very beautiful thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely. So pornography generally gets fitted in, particularly if you've got the addiction mindset, into pornography bad. Now, I'm sure you're going to say it's more complicated than that. So if your partner is watching pornography, or if you're watching a lot of pornography yourself, how concerned should you be? Well, you don't need to be concerned if it doesn't actually cause any problems in your life other than shame, because shame you will feel, that's for sure. And that's, again, because we live in a sex-negative society and because there are so much noise at the moment about pornography being bad, that even if you watch pornography once a week for five minutes, you might actually end up feeling bad afterwards because of the shame that society induces on us about that. So the thing with pornography that we know at the moment, and there's actually quite a lot of research that's been done on pornography and more is coming, which is great, is that pornography is definitely not addictive. That's what we know so far. 
and that there is no normal as to how much pornography you watch. There's no threshold as to when we can think it's good or bad. So it's very subjective. Things that have showed up in, in research is that most people that feel shame about it and are sex negative about it, they will experience it more as a problem than the people who can accept it as part of their sex life. So that's kind of it where we're at. And, and that leaves very much a lot of uh, judgment, moral judgment about it and, and, and about what you do. But I think pornography is a lot to do with values, values about misogyny, values about how women are exploited, values about it's wrong to be having solo sex or, or, or that type of stuff. And it makes the partners often really quite insecure about it. That's, and that's often the biggest issue with pornography. I mean, I'm sort of really pulled in two directions. On one level, I worry, and I've had clients that worry that sort of big business is trying to show them how they should be sexual. And it sort of pushes their sexuality down particular tram lines, rather than the way I was talking about how we were interested in food, and then suddenly we got into smells and touch and taste. And with sort of masturbation without that, your mind throats freely and you sort of discover all sorts of nice things as opposed to watching often, you know, a penis go into a vagina over and over again. But then at the same time, it can introduce you into other ideas and can actually help you begin to find things in your sexual template that you might be interested in. So I feel really pulled in two directions. I, I wonder if you feel pulled in two directions with pornography. Exactly, because it's not just one right answer about this. Pornography, a lot of the time, and again, because of poor sex education and the sex-negative world, pornography is often the place where people are going to go to for sex education. You know, to think, you know, what do other people do? I want to ah. be a better. I want to be a better lover. I don't know. I don't really know what it is. They watch pornography, and what they see is all the wrong messages about sex education. Because pornography is not sex education; it's entertainment. So you're going to get the big penises that are hard all the time with intercourse that. Last Last 30 minutes. And a lot of mainstream heterosexual pornography is actually quite a bit misogyny because it is about the women, you know, being choked or being, you know. And the zero, zero, zero foreplay. Zero um, for play, no, no lube. And often you, if you look at the performers' faces and especially the, the, the women's faces, it's so obvious they don't enjoy it. So, yes. you know, it's not great for sex education. But that's not what pornography, pornography was never out there to be sex education. It's entertainment. So the topic we keep on coming round to over and over again is shame. And I'm thinking of two audiences here. I have a lot of therapists who listen to this when they're in training and as part of their personal development. You know, how do they deal with shame in the room for their clients when it comes to sex? And I'm also thinking of people who are on the recovery from infidelity. Say, for example, the partner who has been, and I'm going to use the colloquial term, cheated on. They want their partner to talk about what happened because it's part of their healing process, but their partner doesn't want to talk about it because they're full of shame. So for both therapists and partners of people, how do you talk about this stuff without inducing lots of shame and the partner closed down or angry and everybody feeling worse than they did beforehand? Yes, that's a very good question because shame is really toxic. It can get really toxic in that area of life. And often shame is the motor actually of sexual compulsivity, as well as lots of other, you know, problematic sexual behaviors. And it's such a sensitive topic that you can increase shame very quickly, either as a therapist, but also as, as a partner, just by the raise of an eyebrow and you can just increase shame. Right. So it's really, it's, it's that sensitive. So the best way to approach the subject is by kind of like sitting down and thinking, let's be curious about it and let's talk about it as an exploration rather than talking about it as in, let's find out what went wrong. Because as soon as we start to think about, let's find out what went wrong, you're automatically engaging in a conversation of, you have a problem that we're going to fix. And that is actually one part of shame increasing. And then that's when the people, the person who feels the shame, obviously are going to shut down because they're going to try to protect themselves against more shame. So let's do a few practical things. So if you are somebody who, for example, you're listening to this podcast because your partner said you're compulsive or you're an addict when it comes to pornography or sex, 
maybe this is all coming after an affair. So you've got some sort of ways that people can repair the damage with their partner. And I've got various steps from your book that I'm going to talk you through, because I think these would be really useful for people to understand. So this is if you are the partner who's been found out after infidelity and your partner is really upset about what you did with the other person. It might not even be anything particularly unusual, the sex, but they are feeling very, very hurt. So the first thing you talk about is the language of accountability. What is the language of accountability and how do you use it? Language of accountability is by owning your erotic palette. So it means that first you have to get to know what it is. And then once you know what it is, to actually use the word I, right? And to say, you know, I did this against our agreement because of my turn on about this. And I understand that it was against our agreement. And I understand that that hurt you very much. And I want to do my best to understand myself better so that I don't do it again. So something like that, basically. So it's very important to use I language. Yes. In fact, you, if you can, ban yourself from saying the word you. Now, why is it a good idea to ban the word you in this conversation? Because as soon as you say you, you point a finger at the other person and then you communicate the concept that maybe it's also their fault. So there's a blame element when you say you. And I is really owning it all for yourself because all the behaviours that you do is your choices. So even a sentence, I like the idea erotically of food and you don't, immediately begins to get blame, doesn't it? Yes, because the other person says, oh, maybe I should be liking the food too then. And then there's a blame or there's a pressure for the other person to think, oh gosh, it's my fault that I don't like the food. So the language of accountability, ban when you're talking about sex, the word you, if you can. You'd be amazed how you can. I have some clients at the moment who are forever blaming the other person. And we have this rule, they can only use the word I. And then they say, well, what do I say when we're talking about your job and how it causes stress for me? And we decided we were going to use the word our rather than your, because actually, both people's work is going to be a problem. So, you know, if you think you can be quite creative and you can express what you need to say, but no you or your, because that's going to make everything worse. Yes, that's right. And in the sex addiction kind of places, people sometimes use the word, my addict did this. And I don't think it's very helpful either because it takes away from the person responsibilities as well. And so then the partner hears, oh gosh, that's something that he doesn't have control over. I don't have control over. Nobody has control over. It's dangerous. And mm. so that, that then increases shame for both of them. So it's really important to really own it because at the end of the day, even if your behaviors are compulsive, you are actually making choices about doing this. You know, we don't do compulsive sexual behaviors without planning it, right? Especially, especially, especially if you're, if we did a good job hiding it. So, you know, it is conscious. And because it's conscious, then that means you can definitely own it in your accountable language. Then we have the language of responsibility. So tell me about the language of responsibility. So that is to acknowledge the hurt and the pain that you've done to your partner, and then to explain to your partner explicitly that you are going to do anything that you can do to not hurt again if you want to stay. So the responsibility is to, is to be responsible for the repair of the problems. Again, so you own that the, the breach was done by you, and then you are going to be the one doing most of the repair. And that's the responsible part of it. And you can't say it too often, you know, I messed up, I did something that was wrong. Even if you say it 30 times a day, that is fine. You know, don't think your partner's heard it before. They really do need to hear that you take responsibility because if you don't, in their mind, that is just terrifying. That's right. And it's got to be concrete language as well, not just, oh, I will fix it. That's really too vague. And and often partners would have heard it quite a few times before. And, <laughs> and that, that doesn't do enough. It's got to be concrete. And then you have to have behaviors following through because the behaviors are the bits that the partner is going to want to see and the bits that are going to make the words actually have weight. The next thing is you've got to be proactive with your partner. Tell me about that. 
So being proactive is again about owning that the breach was done by you. And to being proactive is to not wait for the partner to bring up the conversation if they want to bring up the conversation. So uh, uh, an example, you know, you're watching a movie and suddenly the storyline in the movie is that there is a cheating storyline. You notice your partner feeling uncomfortable and changing their body language. Then you are proactive by starting the conversation about it. I notice you're being uncomfortable watching this because of my bridge do you want to talk about it rather than just waiting for the partner to bring it up and if you can do that you will save yourself probably about 10 weeks of therapy because <laughs> if your partner feels that you're going to bring it up and it's not going to always be her or him that will make such a huge difference i know at the time you're watching the program you're thinking oh f u c k and you know this is the last thing you want to talk about but if you can you will save yourself a fortune of talking to people like me and Silver. So, I mean, this Absolutely. is almost the best piece of advice you're going to get from this podcast. <laughs> so hold it tight. Yes. Although actually this next piece is really good as well. So perhaps I'm talking too soon. <laughs> I, I, I think I think a lot of the time what, what stops people from being proactive is because they think, oh, we're having a nice moment right now, you know, amongst all the problems. So I don't want to destroy that nice moment by bringing up the uncomfortable thing. But actually it is really repairing to do that. And the uncomfortable stuff is in the room because of the Bloomin' Television programme. Exactly. Because <laughs> after infidelity, every single television programme, even the news at 10, is all about infidelity. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's everywhere. So this next one is really important, and this is self-compassion. So tell me about that. Self-compassion is really about retaining that thought that you're not a monster because you cheated or because you breached your relationship. Even if you did it multiple times, there is usually a reason why you did what you did. Okay. Many people, most people that I've seen doing compulsive sexual behaviors, they also say, I love my partner very much. That's not the kind of person I, I wanted to be for my partner. And so it is not compulsive sexual behavior is not an absence of love or respect for the partner. It's just something else. But of course it does. The behaviors are disrespectful for the relationship and the partner. So it's really about retaining that bit, that bit of actually, I still have some integrity, even though I've done all that stuff. And it does make me a monster and it doesn't make me a diseased person or a broken person for the rest of my life. Like if I really understand what were the underlying disturbances in my life that I've never maybe faced that got me to have this major soothing mechanism of compulsive sexual behavior, then I can give myself the compassion for my life, my childhood, my story. And by being self-compassionate, you're also giving the same for the partner, you know? So if you're in a relationship when you believe that you're not a monster, that's going to be felt in a felt sense in the space in the relationship. And then the partner's going to feel that as well. Because these two things go hand in hand, self-compassion for you and empathy for your partner and their pain. You can actually have both of those things at the same time. It's not either empathy for your partner and I'm a love rat. <laughs> you can actually have compassion for yourself and empathy for your partner. But there's something there that you said that I really want to point up, which is what I think you and I do when we have people who are coming with compulsive sexual behaviours is we're asking ourselves, what is the behaviour trying to tell us? The answer is never that you're a monster. What could it be trying to tell us, do you think? Usually it tells us that something is not right on a regular basis. For a, a behaviour to be a, a soothing behaviour that is repetitive to the point of compulsion, it means that the underlying disturbance has to be chronic. It's really different from people to people, but for some people, it's basically, it could be just as, I say simple, it's not simple, but it can be just as being in the wrong job, feeling like a failure every day at work. And that is a chronic disturbance that you have and that you're going to want to soothe that. And one way that people soothe it is by going to a sex worker, for example, and then feeling in control or feeling good about themselves for that one moment, feeling a good lover, feeling that they're not a failure. For other people, it could be something that's happened in childhood, like a trauma, and they're actually experiencing in their daily lives some post-trauma disturbance, but they cannot they cannot associate it with the childhood trauma. So it feels like discomfort in their own skin, not feeling good about themselves. They just don't know where it comes from, but they just have that continuous sense of not being good enough or being bad or being wrong. And when that, that is a, a chronic disturbance, then 
then that's when the compulsive sexual behavior comes in. And the important thing I think that you're saying, Silver, and I'm just going to point it up, is that we think that if it's a sexual issue, then the underlying problem must be a sexual issue as well. And that I think we have to move past because particularly for men, men are told not to pay any attention to their feelings. They're not allowed to pay attention to their heart, to use the image, but they're given a lot of permission to pay attention to their penis. And if you don't listen to your heart, and it's impossible to listen to your heart, the sort of messages will be sent down to your penis instead. So it might be being expressed through the penis, but it actually might be from an entirely different part of your life. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes, that's exactly right. And sometimes people have experienced erections with people they don't have any attachment to, like a pornography or a sex worker or a casual person. And they experience the erection problems with their partner because there is something about the relationship. But again, it's about them. They often that's people feeling not a good enough partner. And so, as you say, the heart <laughs> and the penis, you know, they might not have an erection with their partner because they don't feel good enough. But with a sex worker, they have no, they don't mind so much what the sex worker is going to think of them. There's so no they, skin in the game, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. And so often the wanting to go and have sex outside of the relationship is again about f- thinking for themselves, feeling, oh, I can be a good lover because things are working. You know, I feel I, in that moment, I feel like I'm not a bad lover. But it also it goes back to what you were saying. It goes back to a lot of men's self-esteem is attached to their penis and how much it works rather than just looking into their heart and rather than looking into, hey, here I'm just feeling really anxious in this relationship. So let me just look at that. Let me look at my emotions. Oh, that is a scandalous idea. <laughs> so let me take you back through the help to repair damage with your partner. And there's one more. We'll put that on the end. You need the language of accountability, the language of responsibility. Be proactive with your partner. Bring it up rather than waiting for them to bring it up. Use I language. Have self-compassion for yourself, empathy for your partner. And this is a lovely one. Thank you for this one as well, Silver. Take breaks. Tell me about that. Yeah, sometimes you've got to have respite from all the problems and all the issues in your life, whether it's, you know, if there is a discovery of compulsive sexual behaviors, obviously a relationship is not going to be a comfortable place for quite a while whilst the repair is happening. Work might not be great. There's, you know, life is always busy. Many people have children as well, which always need to be taken care of. Nothing stops, even when there's a discovery of compulsive sexual behaviors. And sometimes it can just be too much for both the people the person with the compulsive sexual behaviors and the partner. And sometimes it's important to allow ourselves to say, hey, you know what, let's just have a respite about this for a moment. Let's just breathe. Let's just do nothing, think of nothing, go somewhere else and just not talk about this. And let's be really British. Let's just have a cup of tea for a (laughs) a moment. Yes, but enjoying it mindfully. (laughs) (laughs) And don't feel that one conversation is going to solve all of this. And if you your partner knows you'll come back to this subject because you bring it up, they will let the conversation drop. They keep on because they're frightened that if they stop now, you're never going to talk about it again. So if you are prepared to bring it up yourself, oh, you know, I saw that you looked upset just then. They're going to, when you've had too long and the shame is building up, they're going to allow you to say, look, can we take a break now? because they know that you'll bring it up again. You could even say, you know, let's have a cup of tea, a break for 15 minutes, then we'll come back and we'll carry on with it. But I think breaks are very important. Very important, yes. And for partners, one of the things that they fear the most is their heartbreak to be invisible. Because when compulsive sexual behaviors then becomes uh, to the surface, there is a lot of help for people with compulsive sexual behaviors. Mostly, you know, sex addiction help, but, you know, there's also modern psychotherapies that work differently from the addiction. But anyway, there's a lot of therapies that work with problematic sexual behaviors and very few that work with partners of people with compulsive sexual behaviors. There's not so many groups for partners of compulsive sexual behaviors. There's not so many books about that either. So often they feel kind of like, well, I'm the one heartbroken, but my partner who's done the, the cheating is the one getting all the help. 
And then on top of that, if it's not the conversation, if there's no proactivity in, in the conversation with the partner, with the person with a compulsive sexual behavior bringing up the issue, then very quickly partners can feel like, well, I'm just erased here. My, my pain is invisible and everything's brushed in, under the carpet. And that's just one thing that partners fear the most about. That's why a lot of the time they are the ones that keep saying, Hey, I exist. I exist. I exist. Uh, you know, please see me. Well, we're going to see somebody who is actually going through this in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of becoming a supporter of uh, The Meaningful Life is that you can write a letter to us. And here is one that I think is going to speak to Silver. I discovered my husband was cheating. I was suspicious because he was so uninterested in me, only barely interested in the pregnancy I was going through. I put a tracking program on our computer. I discovered a great deal of pornographic use and other women that he was having one night stands with or several night stands with. I do not believe he's cheating anymore, and he's moved on from pornography again, to the best of my knowledge. He's changed his circle of friends, no longer going out with the boys. We have couple friends, and he's very focused on family and church. But I'm miserable. All day long, I have flashbacks of things I read and pictures of the other woman he cheated with. Things that are both real and what I'm only imagining. I hate myself. I hate how I look. I'm so disgusted with myself, I don't even look in the mirror anymore except to quickly do what I have to do and be out of there. We've only had sex maybe three times in the last year. He is trying, but I'm completely uninterested. I don't want him to see me naked, let alone touch me. During fights or breakups in the past, he said he wasn't attracted to me. We've always had less than a normal sex life, and all that combined with his cheating and porn use with women that look nothing like me has left me feeling so hideous, I don't even want to leave the house if I don't have to. I know I can't go back to believing I had any appeal or value as a woman or sexual partner. It's like going back to believing in Santa Claus once you know the truth. But is there some way you can help me at least get to the stage where I can tolerate filling his sexual needs in some way? I mean, the first thing I want to do is offer a great big virtual hug because, I mean, what a horrible place to be feeling hideous. So, Silver... We say that there's not enough help for partners of people going through these kind of things. So let's offer some help to her. Mm, yes. First, I'd like to really look at the symptoms that she's describing about the flashes of those pictures that she's seen and the thing that she saw. And that's really common to a lot of partners that unfortunately, especially with devices now, people see too much of what their partner's been up to. And then that can actually have a traumatizing effect. And uh, when people describe flashes coming back up, it's actually uh, can be a post-trauma symptom. Betrayal can really be, not for everybody, but it can really, really be experienced as a trauma that we call a relational trauma. And then, of course, the body image issues are also very common for partners who have discovered their partners with compulsive sexual behavior. Sometimes the body issues, especially for women, can be pre-existing as well because, you know, again, our society is putting so much shame on women's bodies. But yes, but, you know, on top of that, the discovery of such betrayal can really make it worse. Yes. And so those things that this person is experiencing are unfortunately really, really common. And that is indicative of this person being traumatized by what she saw and what she thinks of her husband now. Now, we don't know in this letter how long ago the discovery was made. If the discovery was early, uh, as in in the last six months, then those symptoms are kind of you know, normal in inverted comma, right? I would say normal without the inverted commas, to <laughs> yes. be perfectly honest. Right. Yes. I've yet to meet somebody who doesn't have them. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. But of course, if those symptoms are that intense after a year, two years, three years, then something can be done about this. And that would be something to do with therapy that's focused on reducing the trauma effect of it, if possible. But 
as we've talked about earlier, it can also be something about self-compassion that's really important to, to put in, that whatever the partner has done, it's not actually a reflection of who they are and their worth. And often this is what it does, those kind of betrayal, the discovery of this betrayal can really trample on people's self-worth. And uh, that's one of the terrible things about it too. But the, the person in the letter also mentioned, mentioned church. And I think that might be also an important clue as to how much she was hurt because for some betrayal actually attack people's values, really important values. And if people's values about, you know, uh, religious values or maybe family values or um, marriage values are really, really, really super strong and super important to them when there is such that kind of betrayal, it really breaches to the core, those kind of values. And it actually breaches the core of a person. And then, then that's when you can start to think that perhaps those kind of betrayals are very hard to repair. Mm. I mean, the thing that I really took away from the letter is that final thing. How can I at least get to the stage where I can tolerate filling his sexual needs in some way? And the question I immediately thought is, what are your sexual needs? Exactly. Reading the letter as it is, my recommendation would be don't try to fill his sexual needs because there's just too much hurt and too much trauma right now. And I'm begging you not to do that because you're just <laughs> going to make the trauma worse if you yes. sort of force yourself to have sex with him just to keep him happy. I mean, you know, that's going to make you feel even worse. So please don't do that. That's right. You know, some people think for, for whatever reason, whether it's a, a value reason, a religious reason, a, a society reason, that divorce is off the card. Divorce is just not going to be an option for them or people with children. You know, also they find it very difficult to think of separation and think of divorce. But, you know, it's important sometimes if the betrayal has really breached your core and that could be beyond repair. Sometimes separation is the best thing to think about. But also I do understand that for some people it's off the table for now. However, it does not mean that she needs to put pressure on herself to fulfill his sexual needs. I think it's best to maybe have an agreement to have sex off the table uh, for some time and for her to get some some room for her to actually heal her own trauma because the, the kind of trauma that she describes of sexual nature too, you know, her, 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 she, she feels bad about her body and I bet she might just find it very difficult to readjust to seeing her husband as her husband because this husband is not the husband she married. And so now she might actually be feeling disgust by his behaviors, associating his behaviors and, and the thing that she saw on the computer to him. And, you know, if she is going to try to force herself to have sex with somebody that she feels really not good with, that's going to be re-traumatizing. So it might, at, when she's getting in a little bit of a better place, it might be helpful for her to start thinking about what actually are her sexual or erotic turn-ons. And my guess is that they're going to be not something that goes straight to the vagina and the breasts, which I'm afraid to say from 35 years, a lot of uh, counselling with men and women, a lot of men go straight for the vagina and the breasts. So she's got to discover what turns her on rather than responding to his sexual turn-ons. So how does she start to do that? But it sounds like for her, she might need to start by making friends with her body because, right. you know, we, we, ha- we have sex with our bodies as well as our mind. And right now it sounds like her body is, is a bad place. So, you know, if she can find some ways to look at her body and finding that her body, that she can be comfortable in her body as a person first, as a woman, then that's already a great job done. After that, it's being comfortable with her body and then feeling sexy because, you know, when we have sex, we have to somehow feel sexy. So I think she almost needs to get back into her body. I'm sort of feeling that what would be nice would be, uh, you know, to go to the spa the day of pampering, just so you're actually nice to your body, you know, actually have a non-erotic massage, you know, um, when you're there, you know, get somebody touching the whole of your body. So you're actually feeling in your body and you're doing something nice for it. So you're actually beginning to have a relationship with it. 
And actually, if you're really stressed like she is and really feeling in a bad way, you know, a massage will actually make you feel much more together and better. So, you know, I think a lot of self-care, a lot of self-pampering, and I think that with a break from sex and really thinking about whether you want to be in this relationship might um, help you move forward. I, I hope that's helpful. Yes, absolutely. And and also, I think to not uh, let her critical thoughts get away with it because I am guessing she has a lot of critical thoughts going on in her mind, but there's also a kind voice somewhere that she might not hear so often. And so I would just really encourage her to really listen to that kind voice that she has somewhere inside and using that kind voice to argue every single time with her critical thoughts, you know, critical thoughts like, I'm fat, I'm not good enough, I'm bad, I don't deserve the pampering there. All those stuff are or critical thoughts. And as soon as they come up, she has to argue with them. You deserve that day of pampering for yourself. Yes. And we will hear no arguments about it. Exactly. So the book, I have to say, is brilliant, but it really is much more for therapists than for the lay reader. I will get some suggestions from you for the lay reader, and we'll put those in the, the show notes. But if you are a therapist in any shape or form, uh, get this book and get it now because it will give you a lot of food for thought and make you feel a little less alone when sexual problems come into your therapy room. So as I've had you a witness here on The Meaningful Life, I have to turn the tables on you and ask what makes your life meaningful, Silver? For me, what makes my life meaningful is connections, really, for me. Connections with my loved ones and sharing our stories and having a laugh together and sharing food with my loved ones is a really strong place of meaning for me. And also connection with nature, forest and sea are my favorite places of connection and because that's the grander connection, I think, the nature. And then actually my work is making my life very meaningful because it's also about connection, connecting with my clients and helping them connect meaningfully with their loved ones. It's a great place of meaning for me too. I mean, what's it like being a sex therapist when you actually get into the bedroom? Can you actually leave all of that stuff outside and, and just enjoy yourself? Or is that difficult? I, I mean, I've, I must have known hundreds of sex therapists, but I've never actually ever asked them that question. You know, can you leave all that stuff outside the door and just be yourself? Or does it sneak in under the door? Yeah, well, it, it requires a, a certain amount of switching off as well. That's for sure, right? And to to be back in the moment, we also have to be mindful of that. But uh, I think having all the appropriate sex positive knowledge really does help with sex life. At the same time, it doesn't mean that we have better sex life or than, than other people. It's just that maybe we can we, we know what to do better. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I don't want to finish this conversation and I won't be because for people who are supporters of The Meaningful Life, the conversation continues. I'm going to ask Silver the three things he knows to be true deep down. And um, I think we'll actually also uh, look at the three key things that therapists can do. So if you're a therapist and you want to find those out, you know what to do. Here's details of how to become a supporter. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.